to the word of our Lord in Psalm 19 says this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet, their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is a great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May not they rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Not only is it National uh, Creamsicle Day, we ran out of creamsicles, so you'll be glad to know it's also National Broccoli Day. And since you're the second service, guess what we have for you? On a stick. No, just kidding. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. So let me test that. Let's just see if that's true. I've got a few photos here I want to show you, and I'm not getting that to work again. <laughs> we had this happen. At the... Oh, there we go. Hey, good. All right, Northern Lights. Uh, this was somewhere. Go back. A little bit, yeah. I want to say, Northern Lights. Uh, this was somewhere in Eastern Washington. I did. I've forgotten the the, the caption on it. And then um, the the Perced meteor shower. Did any of you pick up on that this week? You get up in the middle of the night. It's a lot of commitment to get up and, and uh, at those hours. But you take that in. That's Mount Baker there that you can see. Isn't that cool? Uh, so the, remember what the psalmist is saying that the heavens declare the glory of God. And then this is one, you know, the pillars of creation from the Hubble telescope. I just think, oh, whoa, that is so awesome. 
and then this is called uh, Westerlin 2 from the Hubble telescope. And there's so many stars that this is, I can't believe it, because when I was a kid, you know, you hear in the Bible, there's a verse that God said to Abraham that I will make your descendants like the sands on the seashore, stars in the sky, more than that. And I always thought there's got to be way more sand on the seashore, but there's actually way more stars in the sky. I mean, whoa. It's amazing, isn't it? All right, so let's just back up and put this Psalm 19 into context. Uh, we're in a series called, called Faith Out Loud. We're trying to give you words to improve your prayer life, and that's what the Psalms are for. They're there to tutor us in our prayers, to give us new vocabulary, concepts, ideas about how to pray, and we all need a little help, right? Yeah. So Psalm 1 was a psalm where we started five, six weeks ago that is about an individual and how they walk through this life. And Psalm 2, which is the other gateway psalm, meaning you pass between this psalm about the individual, Psalm 2 then is about history and politics and kind of that real world that always seems so big to us. And to know that that real world is really just a small world to God. And that, that, that you can pray into that big world. We talked about hurling a brick into that world as we pray. And then Psalm 3 and, and 4 and 13, we've been in the last three weeks. And those are, I would just put a label on those as being kind of anxiety or problem-centered psalms. And as we know, if you think about your life right now, you have things in that category. If you're a human being, you have things like that. Some of them are more severe than others. There's been times when it's been worse in your life. But there are times where you just, the margin just seems so thin between you and chaos. And the psalms, those psalms give us words for that. Well, today, Psalm 19 is different. And it, you lift your eyes once again. We begin with the heavens. We lift our eyes there. And then we'll see how it kind of flows from there. And there's three movements in this psalm that are very, very... If you don't catch these movements, then you miss where the psalm is where it's taking us. We need to be led. And then this will help shape our prayers. Now, I want to do something a little different today, and that is to invite you. I've got in my, in my sermon, I've got two like placeholders that says, just let people say things. And I'm in control. I can, I can cut you off if you, you know, but I'll look for words. I'm just going to ask you for some words at a particular time. I know this makes introverts a little antsy. I'm an introvert, so I, I understand that. Uh, but just relax. You don't have to say anything. But there will be an opportunity for some input here. All right, here's, here's our outline. Creation reveals God, verses 1 through 6. Scripture reveals God, 7 through 11. And then we get revealed. Our needs get revealed as we do it. So we'll see how that breaks down. Uh, let's start with the first one. That creation reveals God's. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. They reveal God. And uh, there's, there's an interesting relationship, kind of, kind of complicated relationship that goes back a long, long ways between humanity and creation. And so let me try to give you two ways that we get it wrong, and then hopefully we'll see what the scripture is saying to us this morning. So one of the ways we get wrong, and this is probably not true of anyone in this room, at least not directly, is that we might worship, we we look up into the sky and we see how awesome it is, and we end up worshiping what we see. We worship parts of creation. It's called idolatry in the Bible, but 
long history here, people back in ancient cultures, particularly the skies, the things that were in the skies, they would worship the moon, and they would worship the sun and the stars, and they had names for them, and they would bow down to them because they wanted a better life, and they just figured this is one of the ways I can get a better life. It's something big that was awesome to them. They worshipped. And Israel was distinctive amongst all the nations in the area that God said, you don't do that. No, I'm going to reveal myself to you as the one who made all of that stuff that you're in awe of. They point to me, God says. So so, uh, we find the New Testament. Paul addresses this in kind of a big way in Romans chapter 1, just two verses. Paul says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, so things that cannot be seen about God, you can't see them with these eyes, his eternal power and divine nature, they have been clearly seen. So you can't see them, but you can clearly see them. We'll, We'll touch on that in a sec. Being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. In other words, anybody can look up in the sky at night and with, with just some just humble logic, come to the conclusion that there must be a God. That's what Paul is saying. And then it says in verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. So there's that little line about our temptation to worship created things rather than the Creator. All right, so we have, we have that as one way to get it wrong. And then the other one, which may sound more familiar to you, is to uh, look up into the sky at night and you, you, you think that's really cool, but that's all it is. It's just the stars and, and we need to explore more and it's, just a, it's called a materialistic or a naturalistic view of the world. And there is no, nothing pointing, no meaning to what we see. We can, we can appreciate it for what it is, but nothing more. Scientific worldview that's contained, that there's nothing outside of what we see. Uh, this is uh, something that you probably have run into in your life. It's part of Western culture today. If we read verses, let me, let me just kind of play with this a little bit. Verse 3. So you have, to, you have to listen up here. This is poetry, by the way. The Psalms are in poetry, so it, it isn't straightforward language, but still we can learn much from it. They, that is the, the things that we see, the heavens, the things that we can see up there that inspire us, they have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet, Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. So hear that. They use no words, but their voice goes out, their words to the ends of the world. So, I mean, is that that like a contradiction, or is this a poet? You know how poets can try to say something that can't be said with direct language? And here's what it is, is that you can look up there, and you're not going to understand it with your natural senses, but there's something inside of you that says there must be a greater Something beyond what I see. And you have that little thing inside of you, that voice that says there must be more. And that's pointing to God. And some people have that and some people don't. There's a mystery there that the psalmist is acknowledging. So a story from, that I heard years ago from a college student, like, like Andrew over here, is going off to school and he has faith 
and he gets to the school and you run into the really, really smart professor, maybe in a biology class, and his view is one of materialistic, uh, th- there's nothing beyond what we see, there's no actual meaning to the universe, and as a student, this the student you know, was, w- was secure in their faith, they may not have understood everything, but he said one day to the professor, how much of reality do you know? How much, how much of all the knowledge that there is possible to know, what percentage do you actually know? Now, that's a tough question. I mean, a smart person would just sort of back off at that point. And uh, this, this professor was a smart person, and he wanted to... Um, hum, humility is a virtue in many places. And so he said, well, I probably know maybe 3% of all there is to know. And the student said, well, don't you think that maybe God could be in that other 97% somewhere? Do you see how the, that's... So when you look up in the sky and you see things with your eyes that, that you're not seeing God, he's invisible, but you're seeing things that point to God and there's that little voice in you that says, he's there, I know he's there. Okay, so here's your entry point into the sermon. By the way, this is being uh, podcast, broadcast, so whatever you say will be heard all over the world forever. How's that? <laughs> so don't say something stupid, right? No. No, I, I do it all the time. It's okay. Um, but how does that make you feel? I mean, kind of the emotional feeling of coming to the end of those first six verses where David just is, is effusive in praise of creation who is in praise of God and sees that connection. How do you feel as you hear those words and process those words within yourself? What, what does it make you feel like? Yes, yeah, good, good, small and insignificant. I mean, you're seeing, you know, and if you're at all into the, the where we are in relationship to the, all, the universe and all of that, you feel so small and so insignificant. By the way, you know that this planet is traveling around the sun right now at 65,000 miles an hour. I don't get it. Why there's, there's no wind out there. But you know, this, is, this is my understanding of how things work. But we are so small. We are so small. And I think David felt that. Now, would you understand from this passage, and if you didn't know anything else, and forget what you learned in Sunday school, this is all you had was this passage and what you see in the sky, would you know that God loves you? That's kind of a trick question, but really, I don't think you would. You would just know how small you are and you'd have this hunch that there's something beyond that and then that hunch would maybe cause you to search more deeply to find out what that God is really like. Therefore, we go to verses 7 through 11. And if you notice these verses, the shift here, it's a huge shift between focusing on creation to focusing on what God has revealed in what we call the scripture or the, the word that gets used here is, is the law. So let me just read one verse of that to you that is uh, emblematic of that whole passage, but it, it, it'll capture it. The law of the Lord is perfect. Now when we say law, we're talking about the, the heart of the law would be the Ten Commandments. And then there was a lot of things built around that, but let's just take the Ten Commandments. The law of the Lord is perfect. It refreshes the soul. Uh, we're going to 
deal with that phrase, but just think about David's, uh, he, he sees this purpose for the law that it brings refreshment to his soul. And he says, not only that, but it makes wise the simple, it gives joy to the heart, and it gives light to the eyes. And then he gets really, really effusive, gushing in his praise of what Scripture does for us or how valuable it is. And he says, it is as precious as gold, and it is as sweet as honey. For those of you who would prefer dark chocolate, just put it in there. Because that's how sweet, you know, just that taste. It's, it's that quality on the tongue that the Word of God brings to David's heart. It's, it's a wonderful thing. How does this work? Well, one of the keys to the passage here for us to um, sort of hang on here for a sec or meditate on is the word for God. In the first six verses, the, the word for the creator God, the one who, when we look up at night and we just stand in awe and we feel small, that is the word Elohim. That's used in verses 1 through 6. In verses 7 through 14, the word we find is Yahweh, which is the personal name for God. So you have the creator God, and then you have what it's also Redeemer or Lord, our translations of it. The word Yahweh is, is a mystery word in the Bible. There's, it's hard to say exactly what it means. It means something like, I am. Well, you know, go up to somebody and say that to them, and they'll look at you kind of funny. But here's what we need to know, is it's the personal name of God. It doesn't describe God as much as it reveals his name, his personal name, not his, not his uh, title name. And it, it, he does it to a particular people. It's really, really important to get this. So just trying to make a parallel here. But I have a, a pastor friend of mine, whenever he sees me, I just need to tell him not to do this anymore. It drives me nuts. But whenever he sees me, he'll say, oh, Reverend Doctor. And I'm, yeah, I suppose. That, but that's, I don't like to be called. And then he, sometimes he'll, just to really bug me, he'll say, most Reverend Doctor, you know. <laughs> don't do that. No, I would just prefer Mark. It's, I can hear, I love, I love the name Mark because it's the name my dad called me. And I can still hear his voice even though he's been gone for 10 years. And I, I, I don't know, it, it, it's the only name I want to be really called by. It's my personal name. It has story with it. Now God is revealing his personal name here to us through David and, and we read it, about it in the Old Testament. It, it's not just a title. It's, very, it's a very holy name. When, when the Jews got to the time of Christ, so this is a thousand years after David, they would not say the name Yahweh out loud. They would just pass over it when they read it because it was so holy, so holy. But it's something like Yahweh. And that's what's being revealed here. And we translate it Lord in our Bibles. So that's what gets revealed here. Now, here's, here's the, the deal. When, when it, we're not talking about creation now. We're talking about how to live and... What's behind that? So why is David getting refreshed in his soul? Do you get refreshed in your soul when somebody tells you what to do? And you, you just try this at work tomorrow. Your boss tells you, you know, you got to go do that. You got to visit. And you say, oh, your words are like gold. They're as precious as dark chocolate. And he'll say, we have a counselor for people like you. <laughs> it's not, you see what I'm saying? You, you have uh, this... Uh, he, does it really refresh the soul? Now, here's, here's, the, here's the way it works, and this is the kind of the thing that separates it out. 
God loves you enough. David gets this. Do you get it? He loves you enough to reveal to you the way life works best on the planet. Remember, he knows everything. He's the one that spun those stars into space. He, he understands everything. He has knowledge that other 97% or whatever it is, he understands everything. And because he knows everything, he knows what's best for you as a person on the planet. Therefore, he reveals to you, David says, he warns you to not do certain things. And he does it because the warning is preceded by love. So here's the key. Now, some people hear that and they twist it and they say, I don't think God really loves me. I've got to obey his commands so that he'll love me. No, no, that's, that's twisting it. That's called religion. And it's, God is good, I'm bad, and I just have to try harder. That is not good news. So when, we give, when God gives the Ten Commandments to Israel in Exodus chapter 20, here's how it begins. People, they don't get that. I hate it when I see the Ten Commandments listed. Well, I don't hate it, but let me tell you how it starts. It, this is the best part. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. I am the God who rescued you. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I should throw that in there. In other words, I'm the God who loves you. And now I want to show you how to live in this world because I love you. It's, it's, that's why it refreshes David's soul. And all those other qualities that he lists there. Well, um, I want to ask that question again. Of Now that we've gone through that movement, the first movement made us feel kind of small, maybe not love, but how does that make you feel? When you understand that God that way, the scripture, what, how does it make you feel? Humbled? What was the first one? Saturated. Saturated with love. Okay, good, that helps. Okay, peaceful. Okay, you guys have fallen right into the trap. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And that, those are, are good, good, and it will eventually get there, but you know how David feels? He feels exposed. That's where we're going to go next. This is the third movement. He realizes that God loves him and that God has given a, a, a perfect commandments in, in the scripture. And he realizes be, before that that he's the creator God. He gets all that. And he comes to this place now where, oh, look at me. And he, he just brings out, it, it elicits kind of a confession of his, his weakness and all of that. So let's just look at that. And I want to preface that. This is in uh, verses, I think it's 13, or 12 and 13. And John Calvin, who was a great theologian, and before him, Augustine, who was another great theologian, both said something called, uh, about something called double knowledge. In other words, it, it's knowledge of God, but it's also knowledge of you. Those are the two greatest pursuits in life. And Calvin said that when you, when you have these two things, and they work in tandem, as we'll see in a sec, you have true knowledge or true wisdom for life. Double knowledge. So what's happened to David is that he's learned more about God. And as we've seen that, he's, he's proclaimed the truth about God. And in doing so, as he remembers who God is, and he understands more deeply who God is, something happens inside of him, he learns more about himself. And 
Therefore, he feels exposed before this holy God. Even though that God loves him, he, he's feeling something like he needs to do something before he can receive that love. And it's not like he has to go out and, and, and do something other than just make room for it. But to make room for it, he's got to cleanse. And so he begins with a prayer that God... Well, he asks a question. It's a rhetorical question, so don't even try to answer it. But who can discern their hidden faults? Who can discern the error that is inside them that they don't even see? In other words, he's saying, I don't even know where I'm off course. There's things inside of me where I think I'm doing okay. So we call these blind spots. We have blind spots that we don't have the, the knowledge or the, the wherewithal spiritually to understand. So I just my visual example is last night we were having dinner and we were having these brats things and, and I'm kind of going at it like, you know, half barbarian, half man kind of thing, and whatever that means. But uh, going at it pretty hard. I was hungry. And Patty looks at me and she goes like this. I know what that means. You guys know what that means. And I like, whenever she does that, we, I, it's, it's not funny anymore to her because I always do it. But I'll say, well, what, what? And she'll do that again. And I'll say, well, I'm just saving that for later. <laughs> And, and, you know, and she says, Mark, it's not just mustard. It's, there's a, like a whole pickle there, you know. And uh, it's a blind spot. I didn't know it was there, but thank, thank God I have a wife that points out those blind spots to me, right? But we need people. We need God to show us those places. And then David asks for forgiveness for those things that he doesn't even know he's done. And then the second part is he moves on. He gets a little bit more bold. And he says, and I'll also throw in there the things that I know I've done willingly. I have willfully sinned against you. And, and he prays that those willful sins will not be turned into kind of a pattern of life or an addiction or a habit that would lead him away from God. And basically what David is saying here is that, and we, maybe we can say it on our own hearts, when he hears all this stuff about God, he says, I need a Savior really bad. That's what he's saying. So you see the movement here? And then the psalm ends on a very beautiful note that we, we, we quote around here uh, from time to time. It's one of the, uh, it just has a, just such a lyrical uh, rhythm to it. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, that is Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. So what he's saying is, may the words of my mouth, that which comes out of my mouth on the outside, and the meditations of my heart, the inner me, the outer me and the inner me, be in alignment and pleasing to you, O Lord. So there he gets the peace that we were taught. You guys build the saturation and, and the peace and the good stuff. It comes together as he cries out to his rock, the one he can build his life upon, and his redeemer. And the, these are written a thousand years before the son of David, Jesus Christ, was born. But it all points to him. Now, just to recap real quick before we pray, what this psalm has done is it begins with the Creator God that we stand in awe of and small in relationship to, and then it goes to the, uh, the God who loves us so much that He gives us commandments, and we have that in Scripture. But even beyond that, the Scripture says that there's a more full revelation and 
Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews says this in the New Testament, that in these last days, meaning recently to the New Testament writers, he has revealed to us in his Son, that is Jesus Christ, the, the revelation of God to which all Scripture points. He is, and, and the New Testament writers realize that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. He is the Holy One who loves. So let's take that and just end with a prayer. And I want you to search your hearts, which is one of the phrases the psalmists use frequently. Search your hearts before God, the real you before the real God. And can you give whatever you know about yourself to whatever you know about Jesus Christ? Is he trustworthy enough for you to do that even today? And you don't know everything about yourself. There's blind spots, things that are deep within you that are mysteries to you. And there's mysteries about Jesus Christ. You don't have to know everything about him. But what you do know, from what you know, would you give yourself to him? Or recommit yourself to him? Oh God, we thank you for the heart's that are here for the decisions that are made. May the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you right now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.